There are days that define your story beyond your life. Welcome to 5-Minute Arrival. The podcast where we look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. Any questions? What do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is a priority. Our priority today is minutes 16 through 20, which begins with Louise. She was asking for 20 minutes and Weber gives her 10 and walks away. And I actually found that funny because he's almost back to the helicopter by the time she says that he says 10 minutes. He's like done with the conversation. And then we go to soldier walking Louise to the helicopter. Not anything very interesting. No, just the walk to the helicopter in the dead of night is just like building the drama. Now, given the mistake I said last time, I guess it's interesting that they may have actually gotten a helicopter into this space. But I think they're filming it so it's on the wrong side of the house and just looks Mm -hmm. weird. Because when it takes off, it takes off from the side of the house, not the front of the house. And this is when we first see Ian. Jeremy Renner is sitting in there. We don't hear him quite yet. Before we see Ian, I think it's before we see Ian, we get that nice framed shot of the helicopter. From inside? Yeah. That's right after we first see Ian, when the helicopter takes off, which, as I said, takes off from the side of the house, not the front. Yeah. So we're inside the house again, the room we started the movie in. As the helicopter flies away off to the right. Gives it like that storybook quality or like almost like a comic strip quality. Mm-hmm. Like if you were looking at that. Frame. Well, it's something in this movie does a lot is frame yeah. things and rectangles and mm-hmm. doorways. And then we get a shot of the helicopter. It's a Sikorsky S61 in case you like helicopters. Flying away from the city. It's still dark and it's cloudy. There's a little bit of sunlight in the distance. So it's early morning. And it seems to be flying east over the St. Lawrence River. This is Montreal then, still, which is their main location for the film. With Beaconsfield, if you know Montreal, just off to the right. And then we're inside the helicopter as Louise makes a little mistake with the headphones. Which I guess she likes the sound of helicopters because they're very loud from inside. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, Ian is talking and she doesn't hear him. Because she hasn't put her headphones on. Weber points it out to her. that There's a headset hanging right next to her. She tells Ian, sorry, I couldn't hear what you were saying. And Ian is reading. He says, language is the foundation of civilization. It is the glue that holds a people together. It is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. And here with Louise, with the headset and everything else, she's like taking deep breaths. She's doing a lot Mm non-verbally. She seems like she's worried. It could be more anticipation than worry. I'm not sure. Yeah, it it could just be she knows she's going to see aliens and there's some excitement and stress. Or it could be that she's realizing that these memories she's had in her head are mm-hmm. real. Yeah. Like maybe she already does remember what's happening. Yeah, when you kind of foresee something and then you see it play out in real life, which you can edit out or may not be the time, but was a familiar feeling when on August 11, 2001, I dreamt about the events of September 11th. It was really freaky the morning it actually started happening and called my dad who had gone to Chicago because he was one of the only people, maybe the only person I told about that dream and I needed to talk to him so I could make sure that I wasn't completely insane or lost. And he said, no, I remember you telling me all of those details. (laughs) Yeah, because we know for if you've watched the movie before, spoilers, Louise remembers things differently than she used to but once she's involved with the aliens and that includes remembering things before they happen yes so yeah it could be that it could just be the stress of the situation itself she did just get woken up in the middle of the night 
and is being flown off to somewhere in Montana from wherever she is. I don't know where she's supposed to be, but it's Montreal. Then Weber introduces Ian. Louise is Ian Donnelly. Louise Banks, Ian Donnelly. And he goes right back to doing what he's doing. He's looking at some binder or something. He barely introduces them. He moves on. And Louise says, that's quite a greeting. And Ian says, yeah, well, you wrote it. And he holds up a book. We don't see the cover, so I don't know what the title is or anything, but we can assume it's her book. But he's got a paperback of. She's a higher level academic, so of course she's written at least a few books by now. Yeah, and she says, it's the kind of thing you write as a preface, dazzle them with the basics. If we go back to what she wrote, language is the foundation of civilization. It's the glue that holds the people together. It's the first weapon drawn in a conflict. We think that's more of a modern idea. Oh, more than basic, you mean? Yeah, or even that it's the first weapon drawn in a conflict. I'm pretty sure 100,000 years ago, people just bashed each other over the head if they didn't like something the other person was doing, no? I think she's (laughs) suggesting, even in what what you're describing, is the first thing they do is they say something. It's like, stop doing that, and then they don't stop. So so it's like the the vocalization is the first impulse before... He doesn't, he's not even thinking of conflict though in his thing, cause he says, yeah, it's great, even if it's wrong. And she says it's wrong, but it doesn't seem like a question. And he says, well, the cornerstone of civilization isn't language, it's science. Now in the script, he continues this line. What did you do? I might have to leave that in because yeah. that was awesome. Thank you, thank you Google. <laughs> She's like, wait, I know that line. Yeah, apparently she really wanted <laughs> she to be on our show today. So that's cool. Okay. <laughs> Would you like to take over the rest of my podcast? <laughs> okay. In the script, he continues... <laughs> Man doesn't need to tell everyone how to make fire, he just has to burn them with it. Which I'm glad that line is not in the movie, because it makes it his point of view here sound stupider. Yeah. Because people will probably, well, no, I don't know if people will be more impressed by you showing them how to make fire. But burning them with it probably means they're going to die, which means you're not accomplishing much. And we're talking about civilization, not warlording. This conversation's interesting in a couple ways, because... Ian is introduced with Louise's words, mm-hmm. which in the script and the screenplay, we've already seen him, in, at least in silhouette. He was in the Hannah scenes in the script. And so we, we, there, we know there's a man somewhere later or earlier or whenever. But also, in order to say that language isn't the cornerstone of civilization and isn't important, he has to wait until Louise can hear him. So... They need language in order to even have this conversation about how language isn't the cornerstone. Although they are also using a headset, which was made with science. So. Yeah. I mean, language is one of the major ways we test science. Yeah. How do you frame a question to ask and then run an experiment? or run Right. Then it comes down to a question of, okay, well, what is a cornerstone and what is civilization? Yeah. Because I would argue neither is the cornerstone of civilization. It'd be more like agriculture, because civilization came long after language. Yes. Civilization is like modern society with like rules and layers and order to it. Which you need language for that. Well, you're not really going to develop advanced language or 
science, Until likely without agriculture, yeah. because you have to have stability in a region. To... You have to have time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in this scene, they're setting up a humanities versus science dichotomy. Just... Which I'm not sure continues throughout the film. I think Ian starts siding with her pretty quickly. <laughs> we'll see as the minutes continue. A little bit more on the humanities science debate in about a minute or so in the script. Interesting also that the name Ian means grace and the name Louise means warrior. Nice. <laughs> well, and his name was changed for the film because his name is Gary, I believe, in this original mm -hmm. story. So then Weber takes a moment away from his binder again, says Ian is a th theoretical physicist from Los Alamos. You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the shell. And Ian tells her that's what they're calling the UFO. Interesting that he's a theoretical, as a theoretical physicist, they rely quite heavily on language yes. to explain, <laughs> like, as opposed to just being like a chemist or physics, like theoretical physics. And they do like, use yeah. observations of things. Well, no, things of course, yeah, it's and, not, but. <laughs> yeah, and Weber tells him priority one, what do they want and where are they from? And Ian says, and beyond that, how did they get here? Are they capable of faster than light travel? Are they? And he pauses. And he, he, we get a wider shot as he fumbles to pull out a list, uh, or no, a notebook out of his pocket. He says, I prepared a list of questions that we could go over, starting with the series of handshake binary sequences. And Louise is amused by this, but she says, how about we just talk to them before we start throwing math problems at them? And Ian just looks at her and Weber says, this is why you're both here. Yes. Demonstrating that their approach to problem solving is different. Yeah. So... The calm theory part of this episode is actually from the first or second lecture I do when teaching calm theory. It goes back to the basics of what is truth or epistemology. Mm. We have the objectivists and the, the scientists on one side and the interpretivists and the rhetoricians on the other side. The objectivists, the scientists believe that truth is singular, that it's bias-free, it's something that you can discover. And then once a theory is discovered, it's true until the conditions to replace it or update it with a different theory. Objective scientists are more determinist in terms of their beliefs about what forces shape human behavior. They collect data through direct observation, do more quantitative research, experimentation, surveys, as opposed to the interpretivists or rhetoricians that believe language creates our social reality and that meaning is in the mind, knowledge is viewed from a particular standpoint. Rather than determinism, their belief is one of free will and that we make conscious choices to do things use more qualitative research, signs, symbols, textual analysis. Their way of studying is more through participant observation, so watch carefully, but also listen attentively and sometimes participate, take careful notes, study the rites, rituals, and myths of culture to determine the shared values and meanings. Which would be Louise. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so ENC objectivist or the scientist Louise is definitely an interpretivist rhetorician. And then when you get into the seven traditions of calm, which we won't, we'll see like the socio-psychological is heavily on the objectivist side. When then you get into like phenomenology and into rhetoric and critical theory, which is... Wait, is it the, seven schools? Yes, seven traditions. Like so. the heptapods made it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
And let's see quickly if I can name all of them and then we'll move on. Socio-psychological, socio-cultural, rhetoric, critical theory, phenomenology, cybernetics, <laughs> and I'll come back on that last one. <laughs> oh, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah, so then uh Ian responds, I'll bring the coffee, and says more to himself, coffee with some aliens. We cut to a new location as we get an aerial shot flying over Saint-Fabienne, Quebec. The house that has welcome written on its roof is probably 229 wrong 1E Est. Should be wrong. Yeah. Should double check my French. Basically it's route 1 East. And it is packed full of cars. There's a roadblock ahead that has the crowd spread out into the fields on either side of the road. And then we get cloud covers that get closer. So we kind of lose sight of everything. We get a shot of Louise looking out the side window, not seeing anything. We get a shot of the clouds. Then Louise looks ahead instead, and she sees, we uh, change angles, and we see the shell in the field, which in the script it is spherical. In the original story, I think it is also spherical, but it's more of this weird translucent thing that they can see through. One of the things that I like with the geometry, we get some dichotomy like with the science versus humanities, but also the rectangular and square framing, which comes up in the next scene or in the next set of minutes yeah. as well, versus the circular shots. And when she's leaving her home, we see the framed rectangular shot from the window, the same mm -hmm. frame that starts the film <laughs> with with that lamp that's curved yes that and then in. when they're arriving to the base they do like a 360 yeah yeah i don't know what you call the actual shape of the ship but it's like a elongated concave thing mm -hmm. so it could have been you could imagine that the 12 of these fit together and make something like a large sphere and it but it is vertical it's upright, I forget, they say how high it, how tall it is at a different point. But we see the shell in the field, there's multiple helicopters, there's clouds rolling down over the hills. The coast is actually right over those hills, which is why those clouds, there's so many of them. Although I think for this shot, the clouds were fake, if I remember right. These clouds are CGI, so they might be making it so we don't see the coast, so we don't know where we are, because this is supposed to be Montana. Montana doesn't have a coastline. Shell is positioned, let's see, roughly, if you want, if you want to go there, if you're in Quebec, because otherwise you might not be able to get into Canada if you're listening from the U.S., roughly 48 degrees, 17 minutes, 23 seconds north, 68 degrees, 54 minutes, 11 seconds west, out in the field. And if we might, I have to go back to the one tradition of calm that I forgot. Oh, what was it? It's, it's a big one, isn't it? I'm very ashamed. It's the entire freaking film. The one I forgot is this film. Semiotics. <laughs> <laughs> the semiotic tradition is theorized as intersubjective mediation by signs and symbol. I was even just talking oh, yeah. about it. Because meanings are in people, gaps between subjective realities are bridged through a shared language or sign system. And I'm going to say I just completely forgot that on purpose so I could separate it and focus it. Yeah. Mm -hmm, <laughs> yeah. And that's the fun thing about language. Like, too. We'll get to it later. Yes. Yeah, in every other episode. <laughs> yeah. As as we're approaching the shell, this is when we we haven't talked about the music yet in this film, but this is when like a notable musical cue as the score kicks in, the track Arrival from Johan Johansson's score. 
A few segments ago, we heard notable music in the opening when she's thinking about Hannah. was not by Johann Johansson. That was Max Richter's On the Nature of Daylight. The inclusion of, for example, Max Richter's piece is why Johann Johansson's score was disqualified for awards. Yeah, and I know we talked about that. He's had several scores disqualified for yes. awards. <laughs> yes. And part of that is a good thing on his part, is that he doesn't, he's not like an, or he wasn't an egocentric sort of composer that wanted his music to like take over and be really obvious, as he'd do exactly what the director wanted. Mm. And in this case, they already had the Max Richter music in place. So he worked with it. The problem is, for example, Rule 15E of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences says a score shall not be eligible if it has been diluted by the use of pre-existing music or diminished in impact by the predominant use of songs or any music not composed specifically for the film by the submitting composer, or has been assembled from the music of more than one composer. This kind of fits one and two of those three. Because if you're watching this film, you don't know this music is by two different people. You just feel like it's two different things from the same. Do you think that rule would ever change if there was, like, not more than 10% or something? (laughs) They Well, they have meetings on this. Yeah. They don't just be like, oh, they use Max Richter, cut it out. They mm-hmm. listen to the score and be like, how important was that scene? And it's the first scene. So yeah. it's a big deal. While Johan Johansson did not win an Oscar, he did win a Golden Globe Award for mm-hmm. Best Original Score in 2015. For, for James Marsh's The Theory of Everything. Oh, he won for Theory of Everything. His final works were Mandy the Mercy and Mary Magdalene. Prior to his death, he was hired to compose the score for Disney's Christopher Robin, mm-hmm. but he didn't have a chance to start working on it. His only feature film, which he directed, titled Last and First Men, premiered two years after his death. So this year, the 70th Berlin International Film Festival, it will be released or was released. Thinking we'll have to check on that at this point on July 30th of this year. He died from a cocaine overdose while he had the flu. Yeah. So combination, it was officially ruled a combination of cocaine and his uh, like medication for the flu. Yes. He's done some notable films, uh, Sicario, Mandy. If you want to hear me talk about it more, <laughs> you can listen to Mandy Sucks Minute because that was his last score produced. He also did a score notably for Blade Runner 2049 that did not get used. He's done some interesting stuff. The helicopter circles around, as we said, into the temporary base camp. We see multiple Chinook helicopters are low to the ground or on the ground, like they're still setting this camp up, which makes sense. The shell landed on Tuesday. This is Friday morning. So they're still getting this thing put together. It's got bungalows, tents, trucks, floodlights pointed toward the shell. And among the other helicopters, there's a Sikorsky Blackhawk on the ground. And then we cut to Louise and Ian walking away from the helicopter from the front. And they're looking toward, to the right out of frame. So they're looking at the shell. But we're not, which I like that. We're stuck with them here. And then behind Louise, Weber and a captain in front of her 
and Ian's walking behind her. They're still staring now out to frame to the left. So they're still looking at the show, but we've been reversed. And then we see this uh, two-wheeled gurney with a bubble over it that's being taken away, which is disconcerting because that suggests a dead person or close to dead person and contamination because they have it in a bubble. Yeah. So that doesn't bode well. (laughs) Well, it could be they're just, they don't know if there's, so they're just going to follow protocol and be... Right. Maybe the person just fainted and they're like, it could have been gas. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They're just being careful. But that is the thing that distracts them finally from staring at the show as uh, we reverse and Louise and Ian are both watching that roll away. Ian looks at Louise and she slowly turns back to the front and keeps following. There's some supplies being unboxed nearby. Then Weber tells the captain, I want you to take these two to Dr. Kettler. Was Captain Marks? I don't know. Next next segment, I figure out who Marks is. I don't know which guy this is. And he tells him to take him to Dr. Kettler. And he says, yes, sir. And Weber tells them, follow the captain to medical. It should take just a few minutes, and then we'll get started. And he walks away into a crowd of soldiers. If you want to hear a show where I tell my life stories and anecdotes and social and political commentary all around the backdrop of Billboard Top 40 Hits, you can listen to Life as a Playlist and follow that show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, that just happened. Thank you for listening. Follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 5-Minute Arrival. Or go to lemmingdrops.com for links. This was the beginning of your story.